The people that have been the most successful are people that have established sort of social circles outside of work. We don't enforce that people work certain hours. It depends on the team, of course, but I think the only thing we maybe mandate is the tooling that you use and, and how to sort of use Slack and Zoom and Google Docs and things like that. We can't expect everyone to show up to all hands because when you're a global company, the timing, there's no time zone. So we record the all hands and you can watch it, you cannot watch it. I mean, I hope people watch it. We encourage people and let people know it's okay to set an end time and just be done working. And then the funny one, which I think is super important, is also to block off a lunch time. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Blacharzik from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm super excited to have Mitchell with us today. Mitchell Hashimoto, founder and CTO of HashiCorp. We'll ask him to talk a little bit about his background and the company in a second. But I've known Mitchell since 2014 when we first invested in the company when it was, I think, four people. And Mitchell made the decision early on to build a remote culture and a remote team for HashiCorp. So he's an old hand at the challenges and opportunities that come from operating in a, in a remote environment. So without further ado, welcome, Mitchell. Thanks for being here with us. Hey, Glenn. I'm excited. It's been interesting, this pandemic watching, and for us too, but talking to others as they go remote. So yeah. I'm glad to do this. Great. So maybe for those who are un- unfamiliar with with you, your personal story, and, and the company, it'd be great if you could give a little bit of just a, a quick background on yourself and how you ended up starting HashiCorp and what the company does. Sure. Yeah. I, I won't go into too much detail. I, I think uh, during college, uh, I was a computer science major and I focused a lot of my academic research and personal hobbies on sort of infrastructure and this new thing called cloud. It's just, this was you know before EC2 launched. So we were, I went to University of Washington and Amazon was across the pond and we had Google there and Microsoft was a huge, huge donor in our computer science program. So we had access to all sorts of early stuff and I got to see, you know, early AWS and Microsoft shipped us a data center in a box, which had an API and and I spent a lot of time just trying to figure out what this meant for the world. And I was pretty convinced that this was going to be a really big thing and ended up building a number of open source tools around that and ultimately building a company around it. So uh, HashiCorp is really focused on using a set of open source tools that help enable companies to adopt cloud more efficiently, but not just adopt cloud, but use those same tools to also make their on-prem environments more efficient. It's about sort of having a common workflow across these patterns. And maybe give people a little bit of sense for the scale of the company now today, you know, number of people and, yep. and the like. Yep. So the company was... Uh, Founded in 2012, the open source projects were started in 2010. So there's two years of incubation before I founded the company. And since then, we're now just shy of a thousand people, all remote now in the pandemic. We have one office in San Francisco that had maybe 5% of our workforce before then. And we could talk a little bit about that. But for the most part, everyone works from home. Me, my co-founder, our CEO, have been in separate states for a few years now. 
me and my co-founder have been in separate cities for the entire duration of the company. And so, yeah, this is definitely a, a work from home remote ethos culture from the beginning. That's kind of where I wanted to start. If you go back to the beginning, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about our first conversations with each other, which we first met in early 2014. Did you at that time, I don't think I thought to ask you at that time, but like, did you have a vision that the company was going to be remote from day one? Or was it kind of more a matter of convenience or just the way things worked out at the beginning when you were hiring folks that they weren't local? Yeah, yeah there, was, there was no grand plan here for anything almost, <laughs> except maybe the products. <laughs> I can uh, I vouch think, for that. <laughs> I think that's how uh, new founders generally get started is uh, I didn't realize sort of how much of a decision and impact long-term on the company these these things would have. And for us, it was uh, one of convenience and one of, I don't know, it was, it's almost like I, I couldn't imagine working any other way. I didn't think it was a big deal um, because you know, all our products are based in open source. And like I said, there was two years of product development before we started a company. So for those two years, I've been interacting on GitHub and video chats and stuff with people around the world to help contribute to these products for free. And I just didn't think about it. I was like, yeah, we're going to start a company and work the exact same way. And that's how it sort of happened. It became a really deliberate decision a little bit later. Was there like a moment you remember where you know maybe you and your co-founder yeah. Armand kind of said, "Hey, we can do this. Like, let's start hiring people remotely by writ." Yeah, so it was around ten people. Um, I think the actual moment was when we were looking and hiring our first manager. So we were still all engineering at the time. We were all remote. That just happened to be that way because we hired our open source contributors first. And when we were hiring our first manager and started interviewing them, we realized that where is this person gonna? live, but also not just that, like, how does this work? How does management work in a remote setting? And that's when we sort of stepped back and said, oh, we've done something here. And is this what we want to do? Um, so that's when we actually had a conversation of this is when we commit or, or don't, or we start walking back on this decision. And we decided to, to commit just because we felt, you know, it gave us our best chance to hire the best people, um, given, again, our open source pedigree. Mm -hmm. So from that 10th person onward, obviously, you've now hired almost 990 other people since. Yeah. So you've had a lot of experience with hiring, sourcing candidates, and hiring into this environment that's going to be yes. remote. Curious, what's that been like? As you've been recruiting people, have you learned anything about what works and what doesn't work? Like, Are there certain types of people who are really wired for this type of work and others yeah. who, who just have more trouble in this kind of environment? And yeah. conversely, like on the company side, are there things that about how you find people and how you interview people that you found are more or less useful in this kind of environment? Sure. Yeah. I'll focus first on sort of the, the traits that makes people successful remotely and what we've learned. And we didn't know this, you know, eight years ago. These are things we've learned over time. And also just by looking at the data that we have now, we sort of have a, a somewhat statistically significant number of employees and hires and you know hiring pipelines and stuff that we could actually learn things based on data now too but i mean i think the biggest one is you know early on we hired people that had remote experience that helped a lot and as you grow that becomes impossible because not enough people in the world have done this before so that's one aspect i think one of the big ones is the people that have been the most successful are people that have established sort of social circles outside of work i've tweeted about this before but one thing that we don't say to every candidate but I've certainly said to candidates, and I know others do, is sort of directly say, like, if you work here, 
you're not going to make friends here. Like you will, you know, like your coworkers, you will communicate with them, but you're never going to go to a barbecue with them on the weekend. Your kids aren't going to go to the same school. You're not going to like create these strong, you know, in-person relationships that you would in an office. It's just not going to happen. So uh, we do that before we hire people because we learned people that didn't realize that end up quitting. And this tends to change sort of the demographics of who we hire. You know, I think even as a startup, we've always, our average sort of like age in the company has skewed a little bit older, a lot more married people, families, you know, it's folks that aren't looking to turn work into a social thing beyond basic day-to-day conversation. Mm. Okay. I want to return to that and ask you a little bit about how you help people manage over that gap. But let's talk Mm -hmm. also now about like the company process. Yep. You know, as you're sourcing people, sounds like from an archetype standpoint, you've recognized who might work better than whom. But what about just, you know, tweaks to the process, like when you're interviewing or getting people excited about a company, you know, a lot of other companies with whom you might be competing in the past have relied on, you know, the in-office visit and showing people how cool like the food table is and lunches are and um, just the vibe in the office and you don't have that. So how do you compete in that kind of world? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we, all our interviews are over Zoom, as you would expect. We've really never done in-person interviews. And I think a lot of that interview process, probably more so than a typical one that I've been familiar with, uh, is spent on sort of, yeah, what that's like and why would I want to work from home and things like that. And I think the things that people really latch on to is that, you know, we don't enforce that people work certain hours. It depends on the team, of course, but for the most part, like just before this, I just finished working out, right? And I showered and then I came on this thing. And you could do that in the middle of the day. And whether you're a junior person or a senior person, everyone I know sort of takes like an hour here, an hour there, go pick up their kids, like do the laundry, do whatever you want just to take a break in a way that in the office, you know, yeah, you could stand up and go to the water cooler, walk around the hallway, walk around the block, go get a coffee, something. But it's a lot more relaxing for that type of person to be at home and to be able to do these things. And so I think that really attracts that type of person, um, that freedom in a sense uh, that you could get while you work from home. Okay. How about, you know, when somebody joins the onboarding process at most yeah. companies is, is like really critical to making sure that people end up being successful in their, in, in the company in the role. And you, right. you know, recruiting is hard. You spend a lot of money to get the right people. And so if you end up getting to the finish line with someone, you bring them on and then they don't onboard well and end up leaving. That's, that's painful for everybody. Are there Very things much. that you guys do from an onboarding standpoint, again, cause you're missing that human touch? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's actually something that's changed for us with the pandemic. Um, so Prior to the pandemic, what we would do is we would batch together all the new hires. Started at when we're smaller, twice a month, and then it's now every other month, so once every two months. But we would fly everyone out to San Francisco, and that was sort of one of the only purposes, one of the few purposes for that headquarters was. I mean, you've been the office. Half of the office is an open space that is really only filled during those onboardings, and we get people together. Sometimes I would fly there, uh, my co-founder would fly there, and we would present the vision and talk about what everyone does. And it's a huge culture building exercise and to meet your class in a sense. Something interesting we learned there is what we used to do is hire people and they couldn't start working until they did that. They would fly out to San Francisco first and we did onboarding. And we found out that this was setting the wrong expectation for the company. 
because you would go into this office and meet all these people and get super hyped up. And then you'd realize you're never going to see these people again <laughs> for another <laughs> year or so. And, and it was sort of like a sad thing. And so we actually switched it. So now we require people work one to two months before they fly out to San Francisco. And so they actually know what it's really like to work at HashiCorp. And then they meet all these people. And that's uh, resulted in a lot less people leaving for, for that sort of particular reason. Uh, and it's super successful. In the pandemic, we don't fly anyone to San Francisco anymore. So uh, we've actually been, it's we've done two now um, fully virtual onboarding sessions. It's difficult. I mean, some of the stuff we do now is your class of new hires gets their own Slack channel. And so you're sort of forever mm. bonded. Um, that is that is the channel you use during your onboarding. That's also the channel that sticks around. It's dated so that you could always talk to the people that joined at the same time. Um, and you sort of have this this bond. We do a bunch of Zoom presentations still. It's still very interactive. And the group's not huge that, that joins every two months. So that's what we're trying, but we've only done it twice. Do you think just even before the virtual onboardings, does that cohorting kind of work? Do people end up identifying with each other as being part of that same cohort? And you know, if Definitely. you look back six months, a year, two years later, does that still help kind of bring people together in a different way? Kind of, yeah. It's it's very interesting. So I'm sure we could talk about this, but we do a once a year full company mm-hmm. offsite. So we actually fly the whole company to one location and for two to five days, depending on what team you're on. Um, and everyone is together. And it's very sort of funny that people will be hanging out and I'll introduce myself and talk to them. And they'll be, a, you know, one will be a marketing person and one will be an engineer. They never talk during work. They're like, oh yeah, we're onboarding buddies. It's yeah, you know, it's like it's a funny like connection thing, especially as the company has grown pretty big. That's very cool. With working at HashiCorp, given that people are remote, do you try to mandate you know some elements of how people work, like the hours that they're available or mm-hmm. the way they use Slack or other tooling? You know, are there sort of certain meetings that they have to show up for? Are there are there certain things that you do try to mandate, given that one of the things you're not mandating is show up in the office? I think the only thing we maybe mandate is the tooling that you use and, and how to sort of use Slack and Zoom and Google Docs and things like that. We don't, besides on a per team basis, there's no company-wide mandate on meetings you have to attend, hours you have to work, days you have to work, any of that. It really, that sort of goes down to the team level of, yeah, a, a specific team might have a standup that you got to be present at and they'll tell the employee that. But a lot of it is just up to the team sort of deciding you know, are you getting your work done? We don't have any sort of hour tracking software whatsoever. We don't have any sort of attention tracking software that we put on people's computers. Even our all hands, we we can't expect everyone to show up to all hands because when you're a global company, the timing, there's no time zone. So we record the all hands and you can watch it. You cannot watch it. I mean, I hope people watch it, but we don't track that either. I mean, I think stepping back, the two things that are very important in remote are, well, one thing that's very important in remote is enabling asynchronous process. So mm-hmm. anytime you need to synchronize multiple people to get together and do something as a unit is sort of, you know, in engineering, there's something called Amdahl's law, which is in any sort of highly parallel system, the slowest thing is going to dictate the speed of the whole thing. So in that same way, that one meeting that you bring everyone together is going to slow down your entire remote process because People have to line around that. They're going to break flow. There's all sorts of costs associated with that. So we sort of follow the pattern of record meetings, write email summaries, use email a lot. Don't use Slack for decision-making because Slack is a synchronous tool. 
because you know things fly by. And so email is sort of the big tool that we use to distribute all this information because you could look at it when you want to look at it. So given that you have so much flexibility, do you hear complaints from employees that either they don't feel comfortable that they understand what it's going to take to succeed in their role and or like the question about like the dividing line between work and non-work you know I, I think we all know that in the last couple of weeks last few months as we've all been working from home you know i've heard so many people tell me this and i feel the same way the weekends feel like weekdays sometimes mm-hmm. it's, hard, it's hard to separate and so if you're in that perpetually you know, yep. do people complain about lack of separation or, or having to really commit to that themselves, but then maybe feeling guilty if they do and that kind of thing? That's a good question. So one of the first things that we do as part of your onboarding checklist, it's, it's, we give you a checklist of obviously sign up for this and set up your email and stuff. And one of the things in there is actually to put a start and end time in the calendar. And that's not just for people trying to schedule things with you, but that's for you to, to tell you that, you know, when you hit this time, stop working, basically. Because when you work from home, it's very, especially when you first join a company, you're super excited to join. We very often see people that work too much and don't realize they're doing that. So we encourage people and let people know it's okay to set an end time and just be done working. And then the funny one, which is all, I think is super important, is also to block off a lunch time. It seems in some ways a little bit childish, but uh, when you're working from home and you have people in different time zones where it's not their lunch time, it's very hard to sort of find a natural break to step away. And the next thing you know, it's three in the afternoon, you haven't eaten. And maybe that day, it's not a big deal. You do that for a couple of weeks and it's really going to weigh on you uh, mentally. So we actually tell people start and create an hour block, just like you're sort of at like a high school, you know, hourly job where that hour block, step away, go sit outside, eat lunch, watch TV, do something, but don't work. Um, because it's, it is important to take those breaks. And so, yeah, I think that you don't need that in an office because in an office, one, everyone's on the same time zone, but there's a lot more social cues of someone tapping on the shoulder or something. It's like, hey, let's go to lunch. Let's do this. And and you leave. That doesn't exist in a remote environment. In my house these days, that lunch hour is helping my daughter bake cookies. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> sometimes it's going out with the dog who's getting tired of being walked so often. That's great feedback. One other topic I wanted to cover Mitchell is, you know, the the company has really from very early on been extremely focused on the importance of building a diverse, equitable and inclusive workforce and having a, you know, workplace that people feel is equitable. And, you know, it's it's part of your culture and and part of how you operate and you clearly make it known to everybody involved that, that it is a priority, which is great. And I think, you know, lots of companies are following suit as they should. And recent events are an indication of how important that really is. But I'm curious, like, how do you create inclusivity when yeah. people are remote? Like, that's got to be hard. So what, what have you guys yes. encountered there it's, and how do, you, how do you deal with it? There's parts that are easier and parts that are much harder. So the easier parts are by being remote, you can, you know, hire candidates and source candidates from a much more diverse set of locations. You're not stuck in the Bay Area sourcing from, you know, Stanford and Berkeley and those sorts of places. You could sort of, you source from those for sure, but then sort of the rest of the world, colleges or, you know, training programs or groups that sort of represent certain minority groups. So that's better in some respect. The thing that's a lot harder is you get that diversity and that that makes things hard. So a good example is sort of with current events. I think, you know, a lot of San Francisco-based companies that I talk to 
are making some really big changes around how they talk about it, programs are doing internally, things like that. And, and there's a lot of support for us because we're much larger, much more global. And especially not a lot of people aren't US based or US citizens. You know, there's a lot of negative feedback that we get, which is, hey, this seems like a US problem. You know, whether you agree or disagree, this is just feedback that we start getting, right? Hey, it seems like a US problem, or there's just a lot more political viewpoint diversity in our company mm-hmm. because you know we're not sourcing from all from San Francisco or something. We have a lot of employees in rural parts of sort of all four quadrants of the United States. And so you get a very diverse viewpoint on what a company should do, shouldn't do, um, and things like that. So that, that's been the challenging part of, <laughs> of having. I think to some extent, it's, it's success in diversity. We have a number of challenges and, and we're certainly working on them. But that's, uh, yeah, those are the two sides, I think, of the remote aspect. Interesting. Okay. For employees you've hired who come from underrepresented minorities, who, you know, in a traditional company, oftentimes that's just the first step. But we've seen in a lot of other portfolio companies where there's a more traditional structure is if you bring in an underrepresented, someone who represents an underrepresented minority, sometimes they have difficulty. Once you get them, they have difficulty sticking around and being successful, not because of their capabilities or talents, but because either they don't feel included or they're Mm -hmm. such a desirable candidate, they get poached by another company. So you really have to provide a good experience. And is there anything you guys are doing on the inclusivity front that you think is is worth mentioning? Yeah, it's hard. I think what we're we're starting to sort of recently in the past couple of months and then the next couple of months, the big focus for various groups in our company right now is, you know, rolling out official sort of uh, groups for those people, what not just Slack channels, but sort of regular meetings and social exercises that aren't really work related, just to build that culture of community and yeah, to provide sort of a safe place to talk with other people in the company about it. And so we are doing stuff like that. Beyond that, we, we try to make sure internally more than anything that underrepresented groups know that from sort of the top of leadership, which is sort of me, Armand, and our CEO, Dave, um, we sort of continuously reiterate how important it is to us, how welcome everyone is, how we take you know things seriously. That we, we highlight our principles, which include things like kindness and integrity and things like that. And we always highlight, you know, if, if you don't feel these are being followed in any way, Dave, our CEO, just says, just email me directly. Like, you don't need to go through any process like this is super important to the company and so i think knowing that sort of leadership really feels that plus pairing that with just space to talk about it is are some of the things we do there's a lot of programs we have internally but i think broadly speaking those are two really important things got it one thing you mentioned was you know you have diversity of geography right you have you have a lot of non-us people who are living in other countries working for you which is really cool that also probably creates some challenges, it creates time zone challenges for sure. And you mentioned the importance of uh, managing work streams asynchronously as a result of those varied time zones. But what about other challenges that arise from having you know, such a global workforce? Like, I'm curious, do you try to make pay equitable across geographies or do you mm-hmm. respect like what local markets look like? Those kinds of questions. Sure. I think there's the pay topic. And I think another one that's really interesting that a lot of people don't realize is just sort of the employment laws. I think people tend to think that it, work is like the same everywhere, but yeah. <laughs> it's really different. And some of it is really restrictive. And so 
yeah, that's hard. I, on the pay side, we have always done location-based bases. We do it sort of broadly. We don't do like this city gets this base. We sort of say like these four quadrants of the U.S. have this base, this country, which is sort of square footage or mileage smaller than the U.S. has. The whole country has this base for these roles and things like that. We don't go necessarily to the market level. We'll, we'll stay above it. But yeah, we don't do sort of globally the same bases. And I think you know we, we haven't really had any pushback on that. It's difficult because on some extent, if you do that, then the people in sort of like the highest paid areas like San Francisco, New York are being underpaid <laughs> to a certain right. extent. I think a lot, of, a lot of the folks in San Francisco tend to view it as, you know, I want to be able to move and be paid the same amount, which is fine. But it's unfair, I think, to the people that live in San Francisco to have that sort of expectation. So we've always had bases, but they're not as low. I think a good example is we hired an engineer a few years ago in the UK and that was our first engineer in the UK. And I think that the the market rate in that geography was something like for that level of engineer was something like fifty thousand US a year. And so we ended up paying that person a hundred <laughs> because we're like, well, I think in San Francisco our base at the time was like one ten or one twenty or something for that level. And we're like, we don't want to go down to fifty. That doesn't feel right either. So we we just sort of dropped it a little bit. So the base was lower, but it was still much higher. You know, that person was ecstatic because there was nowhere they could have worked in the UK that would have given them even near that. And so I think, you know, it's balancing that out. Uh, those folks tend to never expect, you know, the high, most expensive place in the world equivalent pay for where they are. So that's been all right for us. And you, you mentioned, you know, like labor laws and cultural differences across markets as well. Like, how have you dealt with that? Like, did you have to hire a legal team earlier to manage that or finance and accounting? And like, what were some of the unintended surprises that then led you to make some different decisions than you were, you were thinking you'd make? I don't know if we did it earlier or anything, but I mean, you know uh, very well that we had a couple people on our finance team almost full-time for a couple of years establishing entities in other mm -hmm. countries. Uh, so yep. HashiCorp now has entities in something like 15 to 20 countries and about half the U.S. states. Each state requires its own entity too. So <laughs> we have you know 50-odd entities, legal entities, tax-paying separate tax ID number entities um, that exist across these things. And each state has different laws. Each country has different laws. And we need to like keep track of that too. So that's a very expensive process. There are, we get asked a lot, there are you know, companies out there that you could, I forgot what they're called, there's an a, a acronym, but you could hire employees through them. And yep. you know that company employs them and handles the local laws and stuff, and, and they could work for you. We, those are like PEO type organizations. PEOs, yeah. yeah, PEOs. We've used those temporarily before as we're establishing entities, but our approach has always been that we don't want to do that because there's usually a lot of restrictions around whether you could grant stock options, whether they could have the same health care plan, same days off even. And we wanted to make sure that every employee was treated equally in terms of those benefits. So we always went the more expensive route of establishing an entity. Beyond that, there's even more difficulties. I think, you know, as we've become a later stage company and, and looked at potential outcomes for the company or stock sales or other sorts of things, like one, I think one of the things that popped up that was interesting is there's certain countries, I won't name them because I just don't want to get them wrong, but there are certain countries, for example, that even if there were a market for it, employees cannot sell non-public stock. So if, right. you cre if you had a secondary market, those employees, they might have been with you for four years, can't sell it. Their country mm -hmm. says no. And so how do you say to the rest of your organization, 
cool, you, you could sell a portion of your stock and get a bonus or something. But if you're in country X, nothing we could do. And I don't think that's very fair either. And sort of the last one I think I'll give is, is sort of around communication. You know, France is sort of famous for this, which is that, you know, when people are off work, they are off work. And so if it's past a certain time in France, you can't even send that person an email, whether they're reading it or not. And and trying to figure out how you build those sorts of rules into your IT systems is very frustrating and very time consuming. And so it's a big challenge. I think the way I describe it is we get slammed all the time publicly about, oh, you're not really remote because you're not hiring in Belarus or something. And it's like, yeah, but the world is really not flat, like extremely not flat. And there's rules and laws that we can't just break to hire people there. So we try and we're always adding entities, but that has always been super frustrating. And I can't wait for, you know, movements like the remote movements that are happening due to the pandemic or something to really just like force that matter a little bit more and make that easier. Another question that's come up a bunch related is around benefits. Are there specific benefits you give to employees? Do you try to calibrate those benefits across, you know, geos? One benefit that I know at GGV, we've given the pandemic, we've been considering is helping people like defray the cost of setting up a great work from home type setup. Like, do you guys do anything like that? Maybe walk us through some of some of the thinking there. Yeah. So if you are, so this is one of those places where it's not, the benefits actually aren't equal. Uh, If you are someone who opted into going to the San Francisco office for almost everyone, it's an option. It's only not an option if you're in HR legal finance. Those are the three groups where you have to show up in the office, but everyone else has the option if you're in San Francisco to show up or not. If you decide to go into the office, you get some food provided in the office. And so uh, and other stuff. And so you get a transportation benefit that you could actually expense some of your BART or whatever it ends up being fair. Uh, if you're a remote employee, you don't have that benefit. But if you're a remote employee, you get a initial budget to set up your home office, which is, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is now, but historically it's been around $1,000. Uh, so it's pretty high um, to set up that initial office. And then beyond that, you get a monthly amount that you can use for internet, sort of, you can't bank it. So if you want, you could sort of like purchase something and deduct a part of it as part of the expense. But that's only if you're remote. If you go to the office, you don't get that monthly benefit. So yeah, we do have some of those, but that's probably about it. Okay. And in, in this time when everyone's working from home, we extend those benefits, of course, to everyone. So we gave the newly work from home people a smaller budget, not the full thousand dollars, but a smaller budget to initially set up their office. And then we also increased the work from home monthly benefit as well. Very generous. So you talked a little bit about having a San Francisco office and Dave, your CEO, I know comes into the office and likes having some of his direct reports there as well. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like? Like having one office that is officially an office where people work, but the rest of the company being virtual and distributed, that is probably a mode we're going to see a lot of companies gravitate towards. And I'm, I'm curious, like the people who go into the office, do they get work done faster? Do they have sort of more ability to maneuver in the organization somehow? And how do you try to manage those two very different work setups? So I define, you know, whether you're a remote company or not, I I like to joke that I don't think this exists, but I like to joke that you could be a remote company where everyone has to go to the office and people are always like, what? That, that's a, (laughs) that doesn't make sense because the way I define a remote company is what your processes are tailored for. So if your processes are tailored 
to handle a work from home or work from separate office person as a completely first class citizen than your remote company. And I think that's the difference. I think that's what makes going from non-remote to remote difficult because a lot of things like monthly plannings or stand-ups or something are mostly done in person. I think because our process is all sort of remote first, people who go into the office, they're still primarily spending their time in meetings on Zoom. They're not going into conference rooms. If everyone is in the office, then yeah, you'll just do it in person. You don't need to meet over Zoom. But because so much of the company is distributed, you probably have at least one member of your team who's not in the office. So you're forced to use that Zoom sort of experience. You're forced to still record the summary of the meeting in Google Docs, email out you know, that thing to your team. So that's the difference that I think is really critical that uh, this is forcing a lot of people to do. And I think that having this hybrid office work from home thing is fine if you can keep it all remote first in the process. And I think that's where people get tripped up. Are there like functions that you think are more conducive to, you know, being highly productive, working fully remotely? You know, maybe engineering versus product versus sales versus marketing versus finance. Like, have you thought about that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's really hard to measure. And I think it really depends on process. So I think you can't get a control in that experiment because one company that's fully centralized but may have an awesome process might be super productive. And then a work from home company that just doesn't have a great process might be super unproductive. And so, yeah, it's difficult. I would say that I think coming in, our CEO had never worked for a remote company before. And he was definitely skeptical, I would say. Uh, I can I can echo that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think there's parts of it that he still has questions about, but for the most part, he's ecstatic about it now and sees that there's no issues sort of with productivity. Mm-hmm. So no job function you think is more well-suited than another? Seems like engineering to um, me, like, A, engineers are so hard to find and there's so much talent around the world. It, yeah. it kind of seems like a function that's pretty conducive. Plus, like the tools are so good to have people collaborate. I, that's the thing is tooling. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are, even with engineering, but definitely like design, marketing, things like that, there are things that happen that people come in person for. And we give every team a budget so that they can, not in a pandemic, fly everyone to a central location. It doesn't need to be office, but to a central location to meet. And And so a lot of times for initial design work or certain you know marketing efforts or something they will do that they will say okay we we rented a conference room in arizona or something there's there's approved locations you can't like you can't go to to like some tropical paradise but uh (laughs) (laughs) ask us how we got that policy but (laughs) sounds like there's a story that didn't didn't uh percolate up to the board i need to investigate every every rule is scar tissue is (laughs) So you alluded earlier to the fact that you guys do an annual employee event. You call it HEX. And these days you're also doing, or at least this past year, right before the real shutdown, you guys did HEX and you did a sales kickoff at the same time together. So really like everybody, the entire company, which probably at the time was what, 850 people or so was together. Talk about the importance of that event and what you guys try to accomplish. And if someone was building a company remotely today, if they should emulate that kind of once a year in person type of event. Yeah, I think it's extremely important. It's going to be really interesting if 
we could do it next year due to the pandemic situation. But up to now, it's super important because it is a place where you can align the whole company in person, reiterate the vision, reinforce the vision, reinforce the mission of the company, um, and also do a lot of sort of team building sort of exercises and empathy building exercises, probably the biggest one across the company. So getting these multiple groups together, uh, an example is like engineers sort of realize like maybe they feel underwater and how much their roadmap they need to build and they're working super hard and they meet salespeople or SEs or customer success people who they realize are working super hard too and feel sort of the same way. And then they realize, okay, we're in this together. And this is some, I, you're not just like waiting for me and pressuring me all the time. Yeah, this is something we could empathize with each other on. And then I think the other thing is both for new and existing, when you work from home, one of the unfortunate sort of benefits that me, Armand, Dave, other folks get that most people don't get is we get to see customers and community members and talk to them all the time. And so we see firsthand the excitement and the growth and the success that we're having as a company. Uh, if you're working remote every day, you, you sort of build that narrative on your own. We, we try to enforce it you know, in all hands and stuff, but it's easy to start thinking, are we being successful? Are we not doing well in this area? Is my work not good? Is something like that. And getting everyone together and just like, having these conversations naturally say, oh, you're on this team. It's so amazing. And suddenly like, you know, it just makes them so much happier. And so I think, again, statistically, we could see that after we do these all hands events, there's very, very little attrition after these events. There's a period of almost like, we called it something, I forgot what it was, but there's basically a month or two after these all hands events where nobody quits, nobody, because everyone's just amped on the company after these things. And We've just not been able to reproduce that in a virtual setting in the same way. So uh, even though we do these all hands and stuff, so it is very important. Yeah. So obviously, the bigger you get, the harder it is, and the more expensive it becomes yeah. to get everybody yeah. together. It's a, hard to find a venue, probably. But if you're seeing the benefits, you, you mentioned that you know you do allow like teams to do kind of mm-hmm. offsites together. Do you mandate that? Do you think? doing that programmatically. So it may not be the whole company, but it may be you yeah. know, an entire team. Like there's a question about managers who are managing people they don't know. Like they, they yeah. only know virtually. I'm curious what you've seen there. And if you think like some in-person, you know, more in-person helps kind of bridge those yeah. gaps. Yeah. So for, for people who haven't planned events before, it's a very non-linear cost to it. So as, <laughs> as the event gets bigger, it gets much more expensive. So a 200-person event versus a 400-person event. The 400-person event is not double the cost of the 200-person event. It's it's triple between 3 and 4x the cost. And that just keeps going. So what we do is we do the one super expensive, all company gets together. And then we give much smaller budgets, but capable budgets to the org. So engineering, marketing, et cetera, to do the same thing. And And it's sort of, it's given as a bucket and they could either use it for their whole org or they could, use part of it and then give the rest of teams to do more smaller uh, things. We don't mandate any specific thing because I think different teams prefer different things. So historically marketing, for example, has just done a one big marketing event, focused event. And historically engineering has never done that and has always done focused team oriented only events. So yeah, that's, that's up to them. And we have programmatized it a little bit in the sense that we have these set locations that they could pick and we already have the logistics figured out on what hotel you use and what catering you get and all that sort of stuff, because that mm-hmm. takes a ton of time. And yeah, that's 
super, super important. I think the other thing we used to do before the pandemic and we'll continue again is we'd give our bigger cities that have more people in them a budget for the city in a sense that once a month they can meet and sort of rent a space, have lunch, things like that. And those are really cheap. I mean, you know, to feed people lunch and rent a space once a month is very inexpensive. So that's a, that's a really good thing and also builds that cross-team empathy because you're getting, uh, it's not by team. Great. Okay. So I want to ask a little bit also about company culture. Like you guys have a pretty well-defined, what you call the Tau of DGV. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. I would imagine it's a lot easier to kind of try to inculcate that culture if you're seeing people every day and you can kind of, you know, if you define culture as sort of like how people behave when no one's watching, no one's watching most of the time in a virtual environment, right? So it's like harder to govern and ensure that the culture is really sticking. So curious, like how you describe your culture and then how you try to make sure it sticks in your organization, given you guys are virtual. Yeah, so we have two sort of documents that are culture-defining. We have the Tau. Um, the Tau is really more of a, a product principles type thing mm-hmm. of how the principles we use to achieve our mission from a not almost non-human perspective. And then we have the principles of the company, and those are very human-oriented. These are things like integrity, kindness, humility, pragmatism, things like that. And we're super clear that, you know, we've, we've all worked for companies before that principles are words on a wall uh, that you throw up and you never talk about or never enforce, or they're just there to check a box, basically. And we've always been really clear from the beginning that these are lived principles. These are really important. And the way that we reinforce them uh, is we bring them up very frequently in all hands events, any sort of achievement or customer interaction, you know, a closed deal or uh, a new product release or something, we highlight how our principles were exercised in this deal. In less large settings, less all-hand settings, we also talk about what principles were not exercised. What could we have done better in accordance to our principles and why didn't we or things like that. So uh, as a growth, this is not a blame exercise, this is just a growth exercise. And then because we're not in an office, the way that our culture is represented is not through your in-person interactions. It's really through communication and decisions. Those are really the only way you could see our principles in action or our culture in action. So it's how you talk to people and how you see other people sort of deciding what to do. And so I think a big part of that is sort of like the the programs we roll out, like changing benefits and things like that. On one hand, I think some of it is how we talk publicly on Twitter and blog posts and things like that, you know, highlight that culture a lot. And what's nice is if you establish that from the beginning, there's no culture police in our company. There's no one that like is assigned with the task of going into Slack and slapping you on the wrist and saying that was not according to our principles or something. If it gets embodied early on and you keep reinforcing it, that just happens naturally. And when one of our principles is kindness, so you'll see in Slack that people will say something and someone on a different team or a peer or something will just say, hey, I don't think this is work appropriate. Like, I don't think this is the right tone for our principles or something like that. And that's a really effective way to do this because it's a peer. It's not someone that has any authority over that person. You know, and it's if you respect the principles, they should be giving that in a kind way. And the other person should sort of be receiving that and discussing it in this in an equal manner. Interesting. That's really cool. That's self-policing. But you could foresee a scenario where because it's over Slack and you know, people didn't 
hear the way the person said the words and maybe they feel like oh, yeah. maybe I missed the into it, you know, the intonations or so maybe they hold back. It seems like a little bit of apathy could creep in as you get bigger and if you're virtual. So do, do you see that happening at all or how do you fight oh, against yeah. that? Yeah. So part of our onboarding, we include in that checklist um, a link to a doc that you have to read, which is uh, what we call chat literacy. The easiest way to explain it is the importance of emoji. It's like, it seems so funny. I, there's some people who get it and some people who look at emoji like they're stickers and cosmetic and they don't provide any value. They're just fun to do. But for a fully remote company that their your primary culture is through Slack, emojis are sort of what's in the name. They are the only way that you could communicate emotion reliably because text, you lack the body language. There's no intonations. And so the example we actually give when we train people on this is if someone says, okay, if someone just says, okay, they send you a message, okay, what does that mean? You know, and, and also, do you know the difference? The litmus test of if you're chat literate is, do you know the difference between okay, okay, period, and okay, three periods? They all will say <laughs> totally different things. So do you understand that difference? If you don't understand it, then, you know, the harsh way, you know, we describe it, I, I, we don't put this in words, but the harsh way I like to describe it is, it's the same as hiring someone who doesn't speak your language. It's, you're illiterate in that language. And so luckily, it's way easier to learn than a language. So we just sort of use, a, a, you know, don't worry about the periods, just throw a smiley face on there. You know, if it's a smiley face, it's great. If it's like a questionable face, then you know, like what that okay means. And so uh, we're a very emoji heavy company and, and sort of explain that to people. Very cool. Okay. Uh, last couple minutes, I'm curious to talk a little bit about tooling. What tools do you guys use that you find particularly helpful to organize work and yep. keep people collaborating well? And what's not there that you wish was there? Yeah, we, so the, the three pillars of tools that we use, we use a lot more depending on the situation, but the ones that the whole company always uses are Slack, Zoom, and Google Docs. <laughs> I'll be careful because I know GGV is a big Slack <laughs> investor. I think uh, the, the role Slack plays is the role primarily of a water cooler, primarily. So it is our cultural hub. It is where communication happens and things like that. But it is not where work really happens. It is not where decisions happen. And that is because Slack, to me, is a real-time synchronous tool. Uh, because if you're having a discussion about something, it requires the privilege of everyone else to be able to pay attention to that discussion at the same time. And so we actually have guidelines around Slack where you use Slack for immediate back and forth with the other person's there, cultural, fun, conversation, banter, uh, things like that. If you make any decisions in Slack, you still have to take them out of Slack and put them in an email or a Google Doc. That's our rules. So then the primary sort of decision-making place is email. I guess I didn't mention email is one of the pillars because I don't view it as, as a separate tool. Everyone has it, but is email. You could hop in Zoom whenever you want, and our Zooms are recorded and things like that, but still I think email is the most important. And then Google Docs is where things go to live long-term and mm -hmm. where sort of collaborative documents are sort of made. And we use documents for everything from proposals to decisions and, and all that stuff. So I think those are the main things. You know, I think missing tooling is that's really hard for us is still knowledge management in general is a really hard thing. I think there's an ocean of startups right now that are trying to solve this. And I think the feedback I've had, and I know that there's a couple that are trying to do this, but is 
every single startup that's trying to do this is also trying to own the document creation editorial process too. And the problem is there's too many tools to do that. So sometimes we want to use Photoshop. Sometimes we want to use Google Docs. Sometimes the person is just using Word. And I think if you have to say you have to create the document in our tool, it's a non-starter because there's too much tool diversity. So what we really want is a publishing platform. We want a place where it's the place you search and read and maybe comment on documents is centralized, but the place where collaboration and editing and stuff happens is totally decentralized. That's not the tool. Um, we haven't found one yet. I know that there's, every time I say that, I get like five emails from founders that are like, my startup does that and, and maybe, but we still haven't picked it up. I think that's a big deficiency. Yeah, we're looking for that company. So if you're a founder <laughs> and you start that company, please come see us. <laughs> it will be a user and an investor. Mitchell, this yeah. has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and your amazing wisdom on this topic. I know it's 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 super timely given the world we live in today. And uh, I, I'm sure that everyone listening got, got a lot out of it as much as I did. So thank you again. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks everybody for uh, joining in. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.